Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. Can it be that simple? Talent. Develop a robust recruiting, vetting, and training process to help capable people and then help them to become who and what they want to be. Sales. Have a logical go-to-market strategy. Build the sales and marketing structure and plan around it and then attack and execute the plan with fanatical consistency. Scale. Know where you're going, why you're going. Share with others why they would want to join you. Be clear on who's allowed to join you and what they'll need to do to stay on board. Anticipate roadblocks. Avoid them before you get stuck. And then when you do hit one, and you will, stay calm, problem solve, and find resources to get unstuck. Sounds simple, right? Simple to understand, but not easy to do. Join us as we focus on the tips and tricks and hacks for running a profitable, hyper-growth business. We'll share real-world horror stories and celebrate the victory sagas that will inspire you. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. You're in a treat for today. We have Evan LaPointe with us, and Evan comes with us from uh, Core Science, and you talk about the who's who or list of companies that experiences that he's had five different startups his last one went to a small little place called adobe you'll likely never heard of them uh is learned some amazing things and he's going to share with us today how we can take psychology to cultural alignment and communication i mean let's face it those are truly some of the biggest headwinds that we have whenever we're looking to build out a team how do you find the talent how do you have the communication how do you scale this thing and really evan thinks that he's figured it out so welcome evan thank you i wouldn't say i think i figured it out but i i'm on the path i'm on son, the critical path son of a gun so you got to see it so if you, you got to look online here we have it recorded evan is hanging out in an airstream in the middle of nowhere utah so uh if he figured out how to run a thriving business doing that you gotta listen to this guy so i'm so jealous right now so anyway um let's jump into this so evan listen communication culture I got assessment tools. I got surveys. I'm doing all this kind of stuff. Why should we listen to you on this? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the question that everybody should ask about anybody you, you listen to. So hopefully, um, hopefully this will create some value for people. But I think the number one reason uh, that, that folks that are interested in growing companies and operating companies well uh, should should or, or or should try to get something out of this conversation today is just I know where I know where you're coming from, <laughs> having started several companies and grown them literally from my dining room table up to having meetings in Tokyo about the thing that was made at the dining room table. Um, it's been a fun ride, and what's really made it all possible is that we got two things right. Um, we didn't go after best practices; we went after best people and best culture. And when we got those, you can kind of see them as layers, right? The operating layer on top of the business, that's the outermost layer. We get to see all the stuff we're doing. And those two layers operate on top of a culture layer and a team layer. And those, those bottom layers can either be a headwind or a tailwind. And we chose to work really hard to make them 
the wind at our backs and the, uh, the results have been great. So coming from a place of understanding what carrying a bag is like and what operating a business is like and then going over to the human side of the business, uh, I think gives us a distinct perspective versus most of the people that talk about human resources and assessments and things like that that may not have had as much exposure to the real world um, that we live in. And I kind of call it the senators versus soldiers phenomenon that the soldiers know what the battlefield is like uh, and the senators think they know what the battlefield is like. Some of them do. Um, but that's that's the gap that I'm trying to close and uh, have conversations with people about. So that's a pretty pretty succinct and straightforward uh, answer that leaves so many uh, questions to come out of it. So a, a couple of things. One, people and culture, right? Culture, you can look at as being really fuzzy, really, um, you know, oh my gosh, culture again, you kidding me? I mean, everybody has it up on their walls and it's just yeah. ridiculous, right? So culture is the one side and people, and we talk about people and ad nauseum we talk about people and, and everybody has an idea or a theory, but I mean, you've built this out through five different companies and you've you started to bring some technology to the table here. So let's talk about going back to the, you know, let's go old school. Let's go Jim, Jim Collins, good to great. First who, then what? Is that legitimate still? I mean, is it the first who, then what they're going to do? Or is it what's the culture, then who? So talk to me a little bit about that one. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the good to great box is, a, is an interesting one to unpack because I'm going to probably ruffle a few feathers here, but that's from an application perspective. Academically, there are some good ideas in the book, but from an application perspective, that book is spectacularly misaligned to reality. Okay, uh, let's hit that one. In, in phrases like, you know, for example, getting people on the right seats of the bus um, just a really, really terrible analogy for what's really going on in most businesses, particularly businesses that have a few hundred plus people in them. Uh, nobody in the driver's seat who has access to the steering wheel and the pedals can actually see out of the windshield in a big, big organization. Right. And the people who can see out of the windshield, uh, who are typically in the middle of the organization, don't have any access to the pedals or the steering wheel. So there's um we need we need to probably unpack that box a little bit but going back to get there i think let's go back to that first thing you said about culture being fuzzy and i call a fuzzy culture a culture around the work and every company really has two cultures um going on there's a culture around the work and there's a culture in the work and the culture around the work is when the human resources team or somebody uh, has us do a bunch of Habitat for Humanity builds and we watch movies on the, the back lawn and we have food at a discounter for free and we have colorful bicycles and beanbag chairs and snacks. That is all around the work. And it's decoration uh, with the assumption that decorating our work with all of these great things somehow brings that and infuses it in the work. And often it's the opposite that's the true. The decoration distracts us uh, and is almost compensating for the the flaws of the culture in the work. The culture in the work is the role we play in the world as a business. What gap or problem uh, or opportunity do we hop in for? And I like to have companies kind of finish the sentence, the world is really glad company XYZ exists because, and finish that sentence. And we need to know uh, 
everybody needs to know why the world is glad we exist. And we need to know sometimes that the world isn't so glad that we exist. And that creates a gap that we have to close as a business, because if we have that, um, that idea running around out, outside of our business and we're running around inside of our business doing a bunch of habitat builds and high-fiving each other thinking everything's peachy, then we're way, way out of whack. So we need to look at that culture in the work that starts with our role and then goes into our work philosophies, which is what types of people are leaders here and yeah. what types of projects get the thumbs up and the thumbs sideways and the thumbs down. Okay, so let's planning do we do and all that kind of stuff. That's all culture. That's not operations. That's that is philosophy. And that's so let's, what it gets let's really fun. unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So um, that was a ton there. I, I love what you just did. So what you what you just did is ripped off all the facade of culture. Yeah, that too many people are saying culture is this. Uh, I, I like that decoration. It's marketing. It's the fuzzy stuff. Um, it's a forced fun. Everybody's going to, you know, we're, we're going to force you to do more of this until everybody smiles. And they're like, Oh gosh, another yeah. team exercise, which I just rather off myself. Um, well, the fundamental belief of that is that harmony creates excellence. So let's create a bunch of artificial harmony, like spray, spray harmony perfume in the hallways <laughs> and then hope that excellence results. Yeah. And the truth is when we really look at excellence and we really study excellence in our own lives and more broadly, we realize that excellence creates harmony, not harmony creates excellence. Harmony creates bullshit <laughs> a lot of the times. And, and we can feel that in conversations when the objective is harmony. We're, there's all sorts of things we avoid saying in conversations when harmony is the objective because we're trying so hard not to ruffle the feathers in the room. I love that. And that so means that the conversation is dumb, right? So we want to bring that around the work culture, in the work, and we realize we're getting the whole thing backwards <clears throat> for conversations, meetings, dialogue, strategy to be good in an organization. We have to put excellence as the objective and, and make sure that the team is trying to get it right. And then when they're trying to get it right, we need to make sure that we can say the things that need to be said for intelligence to form in that room, as opposed to counterintelligence to form in that room. And we start to run a better business. We start to make better products and deliver better marketing, better customer success. All that kind of stuff starts happening when we stop avoiding words in conversation because harmony is the objective. Okay, so goodness gracious, we're now down to the core <laughs> uh, of the earth at this level. I love this. So, okay, yeah. so harmony creates excellence. So let's unpack excellence. You didn't say harmony creates success. Why, success, why excellence and not success? Uh, I mean, I like to focus on the things we can actually put our hands on and we can always create excellence. So let's say, you know, there's this great video of this um, violinist who was super famous playing in some, um, I think in Stockholm, playing in some subway station and kind of going completely unnoticed, but just the night before had filled a stadium full of, you know, thousands of people yeah. who were listening to this person kind of lead a concert and you, they can control their excellence. Their excellence was the same in both of those situations. Sometimes the world reacts differently to excellence, even though we've got the same excellence. So I like to focus on the things we can control. And, and for that musician, uh, she was controlling her ability to play and the quality of her, her play. And then, thrown in the right versus wrong context, she made 
probably $50,000 one night and the next day made $8. <laughs> so, so uh, you need to focus on, uh, again, you know, the things you can put your hands on in the world. And I'm so sick and tired of businesses that are, that say nothing was, uh, nothing happened if nothing happened, right? Because you can get the inputs right and then get no result at the end uh, if you're unlucky. But you did the you did the right things, and the team needs to know that you need to sustain that team through those rough times into better times and, and persevere. And okay. then you got other teams that do all the wrong things and get lucky and knock it out of the park by accidentally dropping the bat at the right time. And then they think they've done everything right. And then when you look at that through the lens of culture, if team one gets rejected and team two gets hugged, we've just solidified a, a crap culture in the second scenario where we just do crappy work and hope we get lucky. And in scenario one, teams are really focused on the excellence inputs, doing things well, doing things the right way. They didn't get lucky, but our culture is going to back them up and make sure let's keep doing it this way because we know we're going to succeed in the long run that way. Yeah. So, you know, I can control my level of excellence and I, I try to preach this like you can't believe and preach is probably the wrong word, but it's really what I've evangelized, whatever you want to call it. Um, but if you, if you seek, or if you go off a of luck, you're a victim, your happenstance where yep. what you're talking about is we have to be intentional, be intentional about everything that we do. You can be excellent on the ride up. You can be excellent on the ride down. You can control that level of excellence. You control your behavior, control how you react to everything. So it, it really comes down to that, um, that intentionality. And that's the biggest, I, I think through all of these interviews that I've done through all of my life, I'm finding that intentionality of taking control over what you can to your point, Evan, is really what ultimately leads to success, whatever that success looks like for you. Um, cause success for you might be different for me, but I can be excellent and everybody kind of knows what excellence is. I think it's a probability game that we're playing, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're really doing, if you're doing the inputs, right, then the probability of success really goes up and the probability that that success is legitimate really goes up because listen, if we need to juice some numbers, we can juice some numbers. We can do that all day long. <laughs> yeah. But then that, that's a, that's a house of cards. And, and, and I just don't have any interest in operating a house of cards. You know, I, I want a fortress of a business. And if we focus on the inputs and we get the inputs right, then when we win, we're at the top of the hill, not the middle of the hill. And yeah. we're defensible. And there's a lot of companies that win the wrong way. And they, they, they you know, I, I call product the body and marketing sales are, are like the clothing and jewelry we put on the body. And then we go right. club, Right. And there are a lot of ugly bodies out there that haven't really been to the gym, haven't really, you know, taken good care of themselves, eating the right things, and they put Gucci on and they go clubbing. That's not, that's not real life, man. You know, <laughs> you've got to have the healthy body. Uh, and then the clothing and the jewelry and the decoration becomes that much less necessary for you to be uh, productive and successful out there in the world because you're not compensating for the shortcomings in the product. So but, I like it, excellence from the, from the center of the business outwards. And then everything gets fun and easy in sales and marketing instead of sales and marketing really going, okay, well, what can we get away with saying here right. so that we can generate some success and still sort of tell the truth. But, and sales and marketing, they, they, 
you know, sales get sales reps get a bad name. Even marketing gets a bad name because they're forced sure. to do this. If you give us yeah. crap to sell and we're looking at survival, we're going to do what it takes. But how do we do that from a legal, moral, ethical way? Whereas if we have really good stuff, then we can go out. And, and I, I liked your point is, um, shoot, I can't find it. But, yo, yeah, you know, the, is the world glad that we exist? And if the answer that's no, then shut the doors or do something different, right? For goodness yeah. sakes. Let's, um, let's change it up. And yeah. Apple's going through that right now, right? I mean, when your role, every company has a role to fill. And that role is what sets up the economics of the business. If you fill your role, you're, you're going to be economically healthy because the world is glad you exist. They, they're going to pull their wallets out to show that they're glad that you exist. And, and you're going to create some give and take. You're going to do something for them. They're going to do something for you. But when you shift role down into these old cultural concepts of mission and vision, well, mission and vision are what you want to do, not what the world is glad about. And nobody gives a crap what you want to do. Yeah. So when you see Apple's a great example right now of a company that has taken the role, we are here to change the world. The world is glad that we exist because we routinely change the world in, in, in these ways that, that improve quality of life and offer delight and all these types of things that Apple used to do. And now that's become Apple's mission to change the world. And the mission is something we're always okay with kind of like, oh, we're, so, we're getting there. You know, we're sort of doing it. We're getting there. But and they can say, you know, give yourself a grade of how well you're fulfilling your mission of changing the world. And they'll go, okay, you know, we're, we're working on it. But then you say, give yourself a grade for fulfilling the role of changing the world. F, you haven't done it in a long time. Yeah. You just stopped doing your role and you turned it into your mission, which is about intentions instead of actions. And it, it lets you off the hook. You know, there are a lot of companies that are like, we're going to make buying XYZ as easy as, you know, as easy as as getting an uber you know we're going to make buying cars as easy as easy as one two three and that's our mission well they're satisfied with the idea that that mission might be fulfilled 10 years from now and that from now until then buying cars is going to be like getting your toenails ripped out so <laughs> you know it's it, and then you say well it's our role in the world to make cars is you know this easy to buy how well are we fulfilling that role F, right? We're not, we're not doing it. And that means the world really isn't that glad that we exist. We are kind of indifferent that we exist. And if somebody comes along and does it better, they're going to be glad that they exist instead of us. And then we're going to be out on the street. Well, and, and that's interesting, right? Because multiple people can have the same mission, but what you're saying is the role or how effective they are in completing that mission is what differentiates them. And it, it would seem like the, the old with them, right? What's in it for me um, mm -hmm. most organizations I find don't put themselves in the shoe of that person whose world they're trying to make, make better that they're really trying to, um, totally. Yeah. And, and because of that, like there's a couple of huge companies that have wonderful resources that I tried to buy and they're purchasing process. That buyer's journey was so atrocious. I chose not to go with them. Um, I mean, and you can't do that anymore. So my sense is Evan, that, you know, some kid in the closet in the middle of nowhere, uh, you give them a laptop and an internet connectivity, they can create phenomenal technology. 
they're super smart people that we have open collaboration throughout the world. And I get into a, a couple of groups and I can solve massive, massive issues. My role can be absolutely cha to change the world. Um, so really then what you're saying is it comes down to that culture layer that we hit on. And then to fulfill that, to make that role really happen versus a 10 year mission that we're eventually going to get to, but that role that day in, day out, how are we executing that journey, journey along the way to fulfilling that mission? My sense is that's where it goes to that team layer then. Is that a good transition over to that team layer? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, what else is going to do it? It's not like we got robots walking around doing the work for us. And if yeah. we even had robots, somebody would have to tell the robots what to do. So, I mean, it's funny because we, we go after best practices a lot in business. And the, the problem is go, going after best practices is like trying to install a piece of software on a computer. And if the computer is compatible with that software, then you're off and running. You know, you can do that thing that we want to execute marketing this way. And then you go and you say, okay, we're going to get this team to do it. The team is the machine that's going to try to run that new whiz bang piece of marketing uh, best practices that we're trying to install on the team. And then how, how often do you see us install some new thing on a team and the whole, it's like a computer, right? We get the blue screen of death, the thing gets hot, starts making a lot of noise. I mean, it sounds a lot like a computer, right? You try to run an application that a computer can't handle and the computer heats up, makes a bunch of noise, melts down, maybe even completely crashes and blacks out and can't, can't be resuscitated. And that's yeah, and exactly what the wrong team, we try to get them to do the right thing is they heat up and make a lot of noise and start losing their stability. So then we bring in the program of the day, the, the, the flavor, flavor du jour. And you know, I'm thinking right now, by yep. the way. So, and then you go into, uh, and then you go into, oh, it's all about change management. It's about, let's go back up to that cultural layer where we do the marketing and the decoration, and that will solve everything until the leadership gets fired because we're not listening to the team actually in the front seat, or like you said, the people that should be driving that can't even see where in the world you're going or what's actually working, and there's no feedback loop. So, yeah, it's, it is, in a word, jacked up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, again, good to great. It's, it's kind of the bus thing you brought back up there. There's a lot of good things in there. But, you know, if you look at the 11 or 12 companies that were, con were claimed to be uh, great companies, I think within two or three years, two of them were, were in court for federal fraud. And now Circuit City's out of business and, and it has good company of companies that are out of business in there. So, yeah. you know, I think the definition was wrong, right? Because the definition of great was stock performance. And we got to see what a house of cards of stock performance looks like in that book, which is we optimized, like we talked about earlier, for the outcomes instead of the inputs. The outcomes were the stock price. We defined a list of 12 companies based on stock price that are, that are quote unquote great. And then half or 75% of those companies are in the toilet within a few years that the book was published. So that's not the definition of great. That is a bullshit definition of great. What's great is having the right team and having the right team is a psychological concept where people are internally motivated in the correct direction for the role of the business and how to fulfill that role. And they create the proper culture in the work. They create the right ways of meeting and planning and communicate and communication, choosing the right leaders, et cetera, 
And they do that naturally because they're correctly built for it. So there's all sorts of interesting research and statistics on team. And, um, you know, you're going to have in some of your listeners, you're going to have some people, particularly creative people who are really high, high powered and high potential, um, but feel misunderstood by people around them. And there's actually a book written about this. It's a great read called Nobody Understands You and What to Do About It. Okay. And it was written by a, a woman who was married. She was a psychologist and she was married to a guy that I believe was on Wall Street, but I forget. And she wrote the book basically for her husband because he was one of these misunderstood guys. And she went to the trouble of doing all sorts of research about why people are misunderstood and what types of heuristics are going on. And ultimately, one of the key findings of that book is that creativity is negatively correlated with promotability. Interesting. And, and the reason for that is that people like to promote people in a scenario where they know what they're getting, where they know what's going to happen. And you don't fulfill your role by knowing what's going to happen. You don't innovate by knowing what's going to happen. You don't, you don't improve your culture by knowing what's going to happen. Knowing what's going to happen means you're preserving the status quo and you're doing the, the things the way things have been done around here. Yeah, so, so that's really being, interesting. That's the gap we have to close mostly. Yeah, yeah. because that's where, um, I forget the study, but there's um, the life cycle of these businesses from that founder startup and then it goes and goes and goes and it ends up getting into a, that bureaucracy level where yeah. it is, it, it's focus on saving the, 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 the machine as opposed to that continuous innovation to where we can continue to grow, develop, transform, uh, and, and shape the world into these better, 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 uh, yeah. better places to be because I'm so focused on saving what was always mine right? We're like Frodo and like, oh, it's mine, precious, right? And we can't do these things. So that's, that's a really, no, yep. that's great insight there. So, okay, let's, let's go well, back we can to even that. Take that just real quick on that point. Yeah. A lot of people think that it's inevitable as a company grows, that it's going to change in certain ways, but that's, that's the wrong layer of analysis. That's, that's analyzing the layer of intent, which is, the intent of the business is to go from that startup mentality to a pre preservation and even a bureaucratic mentality. And that's, we're almost saying that, that that's the operational intent. Remember that top layer of operations. It actually is a cultural intent, but even further down at the bottom layer, it is a psychological intent because over the course of growing a company in terms of number of people, our hiring practice will will consolidate on the idea of conscientiousness and that idea of lower levels of creativity, uh, which we talked about just a second ago. And creativity psychologically is a trait called openness. Okay. And openness is about how much experience you're open to. Um, it's like intellectualism is a concept and creativity is a concept of openness. It's like, how open-minded are you? And openness on the high end results in lots of abstract thinking, philosophical thinking, creativity, and experiential type stuff. You know, if you're in the X Games, you're pretty high <laughs> in openness <laughs> yeah, too. Right. Um, but conscientiousness is the trait that we go after in hiring when we start to grow and scale up a business. Conscientiousness likes things to be organized. 
and it likes to be busy. And that combination of being organized and busy is a train me and then repeat, repeat, repeat kind of a mentality. That, that trait of conscientiousness mixed with that trait of low openness, that actually creates a psychological deep, deep, deep motivation to preserve the status quo and create stability, process, organization. So it's not that it's inevitable because if we continue to hire creative people or at least balance the organization, which is what I recommend, kind of keeping the seesaw balanced between creative people and conscientious people, uh, then those, those motivations wouldn't show up in the culture and they wouldn't show up in the operations. The organization would stay creative and innovative because they're hiring creative and innovative people. If the organization hires an army of people lowering creativity and people who need stability and need order and need to be busy right now instead of taking time off to think and create new things and innovate, then of course you're not going to have an innovative culture. And of course you're not going to have innovative operational intent because way down deep in the organization, those are not the intentions of the people. So how does that happen? I mean, how? It's innocent mostly. <laughs> right. But it, yeah. it, whether it's innocent or not, I can innocently uh, run over a pedestrian. It was innocent. I didn't mean to, but she's still dead. Right. So uh, uh, how do we prevent that? Because it's everywhere. And that's one yeah. of my biggest fears is that happening to our organization. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it starts. I like to create tension in the culture okay. um, and to go back to role and say we have a role to play. And, and you shouldn't, I mean, you should try to have a, an ambitious role. You should avoid having a ho-hum role because a ho-hum role is pretty easy to replace if a competitor comes rolling along. So we should try to do something that the world is really ecstatic about and, and reduce some sort of pain, create efficiency, create transparency. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can create value as a business. And that's our role. And if we have that role, we'll realize that that role is a, is a moving, evolving target that necessitates the right team. And uh, we get stuck in business that we're supposed to do, do, do all day long. We're supposed to explain, you know, what is it? Make the plan or uh, plan the work and then work the plan. Yeah. We get stuck in that work the plan for way too long before we reevaluate and adapt. And I was just talking to an industrial psychologist last week, and he showed me this slide that he shows executive teams that he works with about different leadership styles and different cultural styles. And the, and the columns were how do the different leadership styles that were very top down or very middle out kind of just different approaches to leadership work on discussion, um, decision and commitment. And I said, you're missing a column, adaptation. Yeah. You know, your whole column was about the team committing to action. And we see so often that the action that is committed to in business is the wrong action. And we learn that once we open the store, it's kind of like you open, you organize your store, you're going to make a little convenience store. That's your business. You're going to organize the store. And the day you open the door, you can spend a month getting the store just right. <laughs> yeah. The day you open the door, you realize, oh my gosh, I organized the entire store wrong. It's yep. not the way people flow through the store. And if you're that kind of discuss, decide, commit mentality, you just stubbornly keep the store laid out the way you committed to. Yeah, until my theory becomes a reality. Exactly. I know this is right. <laughs> exactly right. So adaptation is king today and adaptation 
really boils down to, well, for one thing, compassion. I like to talk about operationalized compassion. That compassion is seen um, too weakly by organizations, but compassion is kind of like an antenna that picks up the signal of the outside world. And when that outside world is having a hard time, and we're our antennas down, like in those in, back when we had cars where the antenna would go up and down. Yeah, right. <laughs> if our antennas retracted into the body of the organization, we're not picking up that signal, and we're clueless about how how little our plans are working in the real world. And our adaptability as an organization is basically eliminated. But if that antenna is up receiving signal, we get a pretty quick understanding of what's going on. And if you want to create net new in your business and truly innovate, compassion is the best data source there is. Because typically organizations go and look at industry analysis and they go and look at TAM analysis and all this stuff. You, ne- you find me one industry analyst that's been early about anything in their yeah, life. Yeah. So if you're looking at what the industry analyst says, and that's part of your innovation strategy, you're already way late behind folks like me who are out there talking to your customers one-to-one and saying, what is it that's, that's the worst part of your job? What is it that's getting in the way of reaching the ceiling of your potential as an employee and as a team and as a business? I get those answers, and then I go build companies out of them. But yeah, and, and, and that's where I'm looking to make the world better. Well, yeah. I already know what the problems are from the people that are complaining about it. If I find enough, this is a big enough market or big enough problem, then I can make a solution for it. So it's that's just right. wise entrepreneurship. Now, you know, if for those of you that are analytical that don't like the, the, the fuzzy, maybe compassion, my gosh, call it market feedback, call it a quick feedback loop, adaptation, call it whatever you want. I don't give a rip, but fricking do it, right? That's what, and, yeah. and, and that's where we fail because we get so stuck on, I know this is right. I know this is right. How many times have you seen this, Evan, especially in the spaces you are, where companies build something that nobody wants? And, and right, just because I, I thought it, I studied it, uh, you know, the analyst said this should work. Well, they yeah. And so that goes back passion, to your senator you know, we, thing. We, you know, our software measures the aggregate compassion of teams for that reason, because compassion, you know, you can call it different things, but the intent does matter. And a, a person or a team that actually intends on feeling an obli- a sense of obligation to someone other than themselves, it, that's what compassion really is. It's the balance Ooh, of like that. your obligation, right? Compassionate people have a sense of obligation to others and if you're extremely high in compassion which we all know people like this some some of us are married to them or have friends if you're extremely high in compassion you actually care more about other people than you do yourself and you do all sorts of things and make all sorts of decisions that set you back routinely if it benefits other people and it's just part of your decision tree it's it's does this benefit them if yes then let's do it without even thinking about, does this also benefit me? That's when you're extremely high. When you're extremely low, your decision tree goes, does this benefit me? If yes, then I'm gonna do it. And then you see those people do all sorts of things that are directly against uh, what the customer wants or what the market wants or what your spouse wants or whatever. And those are self-centered, discompassionate people because their balance is thrown toward, I'm gonna take care of me at the expense of others, whereas high compassion is I'm going to take it up, take care of others at the expense of me. And then you get balance in the middle, which is I'm going to take care of others and me 
And if the person is both balanced and intelligent, then you can create a hell of a business out of taking care of others and me. And that's the foundation of economics, right? Supply and demand, where the supply is actually legitimate, not some movie set house that looks like it's a real thing. And then you open the door and it's just a bunch of studs on the back. So, you know, that's, we create in business fake supply in, in many cases, because we're so interested in our goals and the things that the world doesn't want, right? We create things that the world's indifferent to, and we create the things that the world is actually very tuned into, but very opposed to. Yeah. And you find that a lot in software where you create things uh, that might juice your numbers because you've done that TAM analysis and you've seen that here's this stuff. And then you make something that's just junk. And then the market's like, you're actually making my life worse for having made this rather than better. Yeah. And just for you, uh, those who might not be familiar with the terminology, TAM is total addressable market is how you're using it there, Evan? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. And then- um, They just finding the whales worth throwing harpoons at. But the problem is most businesses, I mean, most industries are giant to begin with. We don't, you know, I, I was talking to a tech executive one time and he said, if it doesn't make me $200 million, then I can't even talk about it. And I said, well, when does it need to make you $200 million? And he said, right now. And I said, well, you do know that Sequoia started out as saplings, right? Like, <laughs> so and you can, build, you can build a $200 million product in three or four years if you're willing to sell 20 million of it in the first year. Right. And get laughed at. Right. And that's what that's their attitude towards startups. And that's why they buy startups for millions or tens of millions or hundreds or billions of dollars, because they're laughing at them the whole time while it's a sapling. And then that sapling turns into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, we want that thing now. And they go, well, yeah, you're going to have to pay 15 times our revenue to get it. Yeah. They go, "Okay, you know, I might be dumb, but at least I'm rich. Yeah, there you go. You got pros and cons. So let me go back to that compassion piece. So a sense of obligation, and my language is to serve others. So really, that's that others minded. So um, which is so interesting, because uh, let me just try to sum this up, please. Um, So if I have compassion, meaning a sense of obligation to others, and I have this strive for excellence, meaning that I'm seeking to be the absolute best. And I'm looking at, um, oh shoot, where's my other note that I had here? I'm looking at creating tension because we wanna be in that pursuit of that excellence. Um, That's really what we, because the, the pursuit of excellence is the purpose. The compassion is the service of others to create a better world which it goes back to that passion, which goes to a commitment level that if that's truly what I'm going after, and we have a whole entire team committed to going after making the world better because we all align with this purpose, that starts to build a cult of fanatical discipline to the the, the required actions, those leading leading indicators. So we're going to have pure accountability we're going to have peer pressure because we're all going towards these things so whenever we all have those days because we're human that we want to just tuck and roll right and we don't you know tuck the covers back over our head and roll back over which we're all going to have well that peer pressure and that sense of service to our team and our clients 
really propels us to go forward. And even whenever we start to come up to, I think we have it because we're constantly looking at how can we be better? We're never satisfied. And so that's where we have that continuous improvement. So the other language that, I've, that we will use is um, having that growth mindset is a fixed mindset. Um, you know, Carol Dweck's work. So is that kind of what we've just talked about here? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'd recharacterize one thing you said because um, not everybody is, you know, let's get in the plane and fly it to the edge of outer space kind of mentality. Uh, And that's what you get sometimes when you have a culture that's never satisfied is there there are a lot of people who want to seek equilibrium in their life, and that's perfectly fine. And, and, you know, not everybody is designed to, to go until they die. Um, and in that regard, I like to, to explain to companies that there's two ways to measure your performance. And I use this metaphor that you can measure upwards from the floor of failure. So how, how high above the floor of failure are you? And if you're at the floor, then your business is in trouble. If you're below the floor, then your business is definitely in, in trouble. But there are a lot of businesses that say, oh, let's pat ourselves on the back. We're 20% growth Uh, above the floor of failure this year. That means we did a great job. But let's look up at the ceiling of our potential. And if our 20% growth is 20% higher than the floor of failure, it might still be 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100% below the ceiling of our potential as an organization. So I wanna encourage organizations to measure downward from the ceiling of their potential as opposed to upward from the floor of failure. And that's how we measure our success as a business. And that allows us to reach equilibrium because if we're at our potential, then we're operating at maximum efficiency and effectiveness as an organization. And the gaps that form between where we are and our potential are about mistakes and about efficiency. So what takes us away from the ceiling are when, we, when we're amateurs instead of experts. When we, yeah. we make a lot of mistakes that an expert wouldn't make, and we've got a lot of teams in corporate America that unfortunately are amateurs that are not on their way to becoming experts. I don't have a problem with an amateur who's in training, right? but I have a problem with an amateur who's staying an amateur. And then we invite them to a bunch of meetings and they share their amateur opinions and they do their amateur jobs and they bungle everything up. And we're just not operating at our, at our ceiling of potential because the mistakes are taking our performance down from the ceiling. Yeah, or worse, the, I'm sorry, it's just to say, or worse, the amateur that thinks that they're the, the professional. That's right. And that's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where the, it, early on in your experience with something, you go, this isn't so difficult. I got this figured out. And then you get a little more experience and you go, whoa, this world's a lot bigger than I thought. So <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we want people who, again, psychologically are motivated to not fall into the trap of Dunning-Kruger. That is a psychologically predictable thing. And I just want to highlight there's no such thing as human nature. We use this phrase, human nature, when we talk about creativity, we talk about risk tolerance, we talk about change tolerance, and all these things are human nature. There are humans that love change, and there are humans that hate change, and there are humans that tolerate risk, and there are humans that don't tolerate risk. We don't even feel the same way as a species about cilantro. So to talk about this idea of human nature when almost 100% of our motivations are different from one another. That means we can go get the right kinds of humans to sculpt the environment and sculpt the culture and sculpt the team's intentions 
if we believe in human nature, then we believe people are more or less interchangeable. So right. we will get, we will accidentally get the wrong humans. So, you know, kind of bringing it back, um, I, I, I forget the, the, the original question that we were on here. Um, well, we, t we talked was, about the two ways to measure, the upward measure and oh, the downward yeah, measure. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get, you've got a team and we want to get that team operating at ceiling of potential. And that means eliminating mistakes by, by eliminating the, the amateurishness of certain teams. It's, it's boosting their expertise, their skills, et cetera, and their intent by that psychological profile. The second dimension that we experience um, where we drop below our ceiling of our potential is an efficiency. And I call that the compassion gap. So when people have to spend three hours a week filing their expenses, that's, that's three hours of pure waste. And we say, oh, well, that's just, that's the tool we have here. And that's the process we have here. So everybody has to suffer together. Well, that's stupid. We're reducing the performance of our team by three hours a week because we're asking them who 99% of people are telling the truth and, and using their credit card properly. We're taking them out of the field for three hours a week so that we can watch over their shoulder at their expenses instead of just saying, here's the credit card. You're going to spend zero seconds a week doing your expenses and filing things. We're going to take care of it for you. Here's a better piece of software or here's just a credit card and you don't worry about anything. And then you're going to have a few bad actors and get rid of the bad actors rather than making a process for the good actors. Right. So yeah. it's, it is, uh, it's just the conscientiousness crisis is what I call it. That companies have hired so many conscientious people and they love organization and process, which is good most of the time. But when you have 1% of your sales force misusing their credit card and you create a process that then you apply to a hundred percent of people, then you have basically reduced us away from our ceiling of our potential by adding overhead and fat and process to something that doesn't need to be there because your conscientiousness means is telling you we need a process to eliminate the possibility that this could happen again. Yeah. No, you need to allow the possibility to happen again because if you look at it like I look at it from an analytical perspective, I love processes that people can abuse because it teaches me who the dickheads are right away. <laughs> and then we can manage that because I believe that people have a spectrum of intentions and the data supports that belief. So I want to see those intentions as quickly as possible, as transparently as possible. Try to adjust if, you know, I'm not just gonna fire a person instantaneously, but let's put you in a situation you should be able to handle. And if you routinely can't handle that situation, I got a pretty clear picture of your intentions and I'm not going to pollute the 99% of people doing it the right way just because you habitually are a bad actor. So All right. So with that as the idea, how do we get their intentions? I'm hoping that you're going to tell us, Oh, I got away. <laughs> right. So how do we get their intentions? So psychology is a sticky wicket and, um, here's a, there's a great book, but it's a great book. If you love scientific journals, <laughs> it's a little bit of a thick book, but it's a great educational book called the person in the situation. Okay. Because what we really have going on in life is we have personal intent. And then we have a situation that we're in a context that we're in. And we know that, you know, we know from our own lives, if we're in a hurry, 
then we have different set of intents than if we're not in a hurry, right? When we're in vacation mode, we're going to behave differently than we're when we're late for a meeting. And if we're in vacation mode, and there's and some one of the things in the book was if if you're in vacation mode, and there's a person on the street asking for money, we might be six or seven times more likely to hand that person five dollars than if we're in a rush, relate for a meeting, we're blowing right past that person because we got tunnel vision about where we're going. So the book basically summarizes that the situation is three times more powerful in understanding what people might do than the person's individual intent or individual psychology. So a super, super kind person who would almost always donate that $5 becomes very unlikely to do it when the situation changes, right? It's three times more powerful. So that's what we have to deconstruct in business is we have to get the right people who have the right intentions in, in, in calm mode, right? And then we have to get the situation right. Well, what is the situation? It's our culture. We have to, we have to surround them with a situation that leads to the right set of outcomes so that the right people are propelled to make the right choices. And even the wrong people in some cases are propelled to make the right choices because that situation influences them. But the more we get those in alignment, the better we can do. And now what I realize with all the assessments that are out there is nothing is really designed to do this at scale and to estimate the chemistry of teams that are psychologically diverse. Because when a team of people that are psychologically diverse meets, they don't just discuss each of their perspectives. There's a, there's a whole new dynamic that forms in that group. And, and what I saw as a gap in the market was there's nothing estimating what that dynamic is. What is this, the prevailing decision mindset and conversational mindset of this unique group of people? So I'm about to go into a meeting with three people. What is that meeting gonna be like given the psychology of those three individuals. And that's a, that's a highly predictable phenomenon. So the analyst in me was like, let me try to build something and validate essentially an analytics software for interpersonal dynamics and in, in, in the workplace. So we can say, if you and I were to have a conversation, how is that conversation gonna go? Do we share intellectual and psychological priorities or do we have conflicts and when we have those conflicts what are those conflicts likely to be so we can say if a person highly conscientious is in a room with a person who's not highly conscientious the highly conscientious person is going to dominate that room because they're going to create order and structure they're going to organize thoughts they're going to demand that we stay on time they're going to demand that we get to work and the conscientious the, the person lower is going to be more fluid and in that dynamic in 2020 capitalist democracy america where we are the conscientious person in that corporate environment is seen as the superior thinker because yeah. they want to be organized get to work you know and, and complete the task so in that dynamic they will dominate and if they're conscientious enough then they're going to be too rigid too process oriented and they're going to turn everything into our 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 expenses process that we talked about earlier where the other not less conscientious person is going to say like dude about your policy relax about your process here you yeah. need to chill out about this stuff we need to slow this process down we need to not get to action and not build a process 
because I can see flaws with it that are unresolved right now. And that will lead to mistakes later that will reduce our performance. So I, we don't need people, you know, slowing us down in everything and slowing us to a halt. But there's such a thing as too fast and there's such a thing as too slow. And Abraham Lincoln had this great quote, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the ax. And we all know people who will spend the first four hours trying to chew the tree down with their damn teeth because they're so conscientious <laughs> that they won't even bother to find an ax, never mind sharpen it. They just go right at the tree. Yeah. And I've worked with people like that and you're like, bro, slow down. There are tools and things that can help us do this much more effectively so we can chop the whole forest down by the time you get through the bark layer. Yeah, that's so funny. So that's, that's kind of the issue that we have. And I, I love Abraham's wisdom and Einstein, if he gave me 60 minutes to uh, save the world, I'd spend the first 45 figuring out what the problem is and the second yeah. and the next 15 solving it, right? So when smart people are telling us that the balance of our time should be in figuring out the best way to execute and the minority of our time should be in execution, you know, that's what the smartest people in human history think. Hmm. So when, we've, when we're compelled in an organization to act, 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 I call that Roomba management. It's like that little robot vacuum that only knows where the walls are because it takes off and it runs into everything in the room and it, and it refuses to look at the room. It's like, no, I'm just going to set off. And when I bump into the walls, that's the only conceivable way I could figure out what this room looks like is by bumping into everything yeah. and experiencing millions of failures in order to determine the space that success occupies. And I, I think Roomba management is a, is a tragedy for business right now. A hundred percent. And then, so really situation is a culture and the right situation that le will lead to the right choices. That's right. It, it sculpts the environment so that, you know, thinking for, for, or sharpening the ax for four hours is the cultural priority. And that's the culture in the work, right? We're not talking yeah. about sharpening some, make the world a better place, Miss America, you, you know, Miss Teen USA kind of idea. We're talking about right here in this meeting, are we the kind of team that spends the first four hours sharpening the ax <clears throat> or are we the kind of team and culture that loves it when people go start to chew, tree down, chew trees down like a bunch of beavers? So we have to have the culture, you, you said the word earlier, it's the right word, be massively intentional about what it's like to do work here, the philosophies of how we fulfill our role. And we'll yep. realize that there are superior and inferior philosophies for how to fulfill our role best. So I really like this. So it's, uh, and I tweaked this a little bit, situation is the culture. And by doing this, we have the right situation that leads to the right decisions and therefore actions being made. That's right. That's Love right. it. Now, so, You've created a, uh, a platform to do this. So, and my gosh, I could talk all day, but I want to be very cognizant of your time because I can't believe that we screamed through this time already. Um, so uh, let's pause here and we're, we'll, I, I don't, I've never hired anybody back, but my gosh, we could do 10 things on this. Um, you've given us so much. So I typically ask for a, for a, a resource or a tool or a business hack, but um, let's go right down to it. I mean, what's, the future hold? I mean, with this platform that you've created, and we'll get to that in a second, um, what's the future hold? I mean, for those that have this versus those who don't? Yeah, I think that's the key. I mean, the, the technology that we ended up selling to Adobe, 
um, wasn't an, an if product. It was a when product, right? It, it was, uh, and I, and I like that. I like creating businesses that have roles that align to, this isn't about whether or not you're going to use this. It's about when you're going to begin. And are you going to be an early adopter? Or are you going to be a late adopter? Because under no scenario is a business better, better off not understanding its team dynamic than it is understanding its team dynamic. It'd be like saying, we're not going to understand our marketing campaigns, our digital marketing campaigns. We, we can guarantee that we're better off not having the data about campaign performance and, and audiences right. uh, than we would be if we had that data. And it's the same thing with this. There's, I'm trying to create something that is a no-brainer um, and it's priced as a no-brainer too. I mean, this isn't a pitch, but I, I again, I can't, I can't fulfill the role that I want to fulfill with Core uh, if it's if it's unapproachable by most businesses. It yeah. needs to be extremely approachable in terms of ease of use, ease of implementation, price, rollout, future, etc. So those are the priorities that we have as a business to say this needs to be dead simple. And, and very inexpensive relative to its value uh, because every business is better off when it has this predictive analytics of how teams behave together. And yeah. what, we, what we do is we don't just say, let's look at your sales team. We actually say, here's a meeting coming up. We've read your calendar and we'll slack you a link before the calendar that says, you're about to go into this meeting. This is how that meeting will go. And here are three things you can do to make the meeting go better, be smarter, and emerge with better decisions and better actions than you would. And it's just a, it's just a scale thing, because in large organizations, I mean, I don't know how many you're in touch with, but I can't tell you how many meetings in large organizations that the meeting begins with colleagues saying, it's nice to meet you, right? <laughs> These people are in a meeting to make a key business decision, and they've never even met each other. Yeah. So what is their capacity to understand that person's motivations, that person's communication style, that person's intent for the meeting? We need software and tools like we need it in marketing because the scale and complexity and lack of familiarity with the teams that we interact with day in and day out, it, it just exceeds human capacity. We can't yeah. say, you know what, you guys need to have 11 meetings to get to know each other so that you can begin this conversation we're here as a group of people from engineering and marketing and product management and architecture, et cetera, to figure something out today. And we need to accelerate the process of having great dialogue as a team of people. So that's what we're trying to create. And I guess you're suggesting that throwing <clears throat> axes together is not the way. It, it um, yeah, it's, it's not the way. It's not the way. <laughs> Because that creates that culture, right? And I can make this really simple to tell you kind of what our software does is a harmony culture. If you picture a Venn diagram, two circles that represent two people's intelligence and interests, right? So what they're going to bring to a conversation, you've got your circle and I've got my circle. If the priority of our culture is harmony, which is the, the ax throwing scenario, right? Um, then the conversation that we have is going to be the part of our Venn diagram that overlaps. It's yeah. going to be our shared interests and our shared knowledge. And if I share something with you that's outside of your circle, you might start to bristle a little bit because it might be bad news or it might be a different way of seeing something that you're not really feeling right now. 
And a harmony culture says, talk about less, talk about the things you agree on. And then yeah. what happens when we add people to the room? The overlap area actually shrinks as we add more circles. So we can end up with a room full of 10 people where the intelligence of the room is the overlap. It's the intersection of those 10 circles. And that's a little tiny dot of intelligence relative to the huge amount of intelligence that the room really does have. And yeah. we all felt that in conversation, like, well, I should say this, but I'm not going to. And that means the room just got that much dumber. Yeah. So that's what our software is estimating is what is the combined intelligence and perspective of this room? What is the potential for it to turn into this little dot? And we replace what we call a harmony culture with the idea of a Socratic culture. Yeah. And that's, that's a cornerstone of the situation, right? The cornerstone of the culture that we promote when we work with companies from both a software and a services perspective is we say, a Socratic culture is more interested in what it doesn't know than what it does know, like Socrates was. Socrates would have a conversation to figure out the rest of your circle, yeah. not to figure out the overlap. And if, if a team is interested in what they don't know, then they get the combined intelligence of that room and they can do it really quickly once they get used to doing it. Yeah, so really, really good stuff. So Evan, can't thank you enough. Let's, let's wind this down to who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And, and why should people reach out to you? Well, I mean, I, I like to tell people when they ask me what I do, I, I like to tell them, do you want me to, to tell you what I do for free or the, the stuff that I charge for? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just a big fan of quality of life at work and, and of uh, intelligence at work. So if people want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm just at Evan LaPointe on Twitter. I love meeting people and talking to people and just sharing what I've experienced and what's worked for me. Um, and I love kind of having just introductory calls and chats like this with people. So that's the free thing. And, and a lot more content is going to come out of our business over time, just sharing what we learn as we go uh, completely for free, just to fulfill our role of helping companies become smarter. Nice. And uh, the stuff we charge for is um, we help people understand culture. We help people name the ceiling for one thing, because a lot of companies have no idea what their potential is. And we have to go through an exercise to actually describe what the potential is. And once we've described it, then the gaps reveal themselves. We go, this is a gap in our excellence, in our amateur versus expert type uh, dimension. And then here's the gap where we're spending way more effort than necessary to achieve outcomes. That's the compassion gap. And those gaps are filled with all sorts of little projects that we can do to close those gaps and get businesses operating at their potential. So. I love doing that. And of course, the software assesses the team. And, uh, you know, again, if you're, if you're ready to make that quantum leap and understanding what your, what your organization's mind looks like, um, you know, that's a no brainer for us to have a chat. But either way, I'm, I'm happy whether it's free or paid. I just want to fulfill our role of making companies smarter and less frustrated. Well, let's, let's uh, help Evan to fulfill that role. Evan, a uh, ton of wealth of information here. Great content. Can't thank you enough. Uh, look forward to some conversations offline here to, to go further and deeper into this. So thanks a lot. And hey, this is Brian Whittington signing off with the Talent Sales and Scale Show from Evan's Airstream in Utah. <laughs> signing off. See ya. <laughs>